we all fundamentally want to believe that there are transferable skills that you can port from one domain to another. But as all of us know, and even folks within you know, the Harvard Business School who are getting MBAs or, or doctorates, it's not easy to actually pivot from one industry to another. It's not easy to get that chance from an employer who wants to see the exact experience there. Businesses, workers, and educators have seen traditional skills development models fail to meet the demands of new technologies, globalization, and changing workforce demographics. COVID-19 has telescoped the timelines around many of those trends and added new urgency to the imperative for workforce development and upskilling. How can students aspiring to join the workforce soon and incumbent workers keep pace with changing job requirements? What changes are required of the workforce development and education systems to ensure that workers have the opportunity to achieve that goal? What role should employers play in bringing about needed change? And what has COVID-19 revealed about the challenges ahead? Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast. I'm your host, Harvard Business School professor and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Joe Fuller. Michelle Weiss, author of the new book, Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, joins me to discuss the structural shifts redefining work, the need for transferable skills, and the role educators, businesses, and disruptive new entrants can play in reshaping America's skills system. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. Michelle, you've got a new book out, Long Life Learning, it's called, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. Um, you draw on a very rich and diverse background uh, to uh, in, in, in preparing to write this book. Maybe you could share some of that with our listeners. Sure. I don't think I have sort of a typical route into the sort of skills and workforce training space. I used to actually be a, an English professor <laughs> at Skidmore College. After I left academia, I actually started this work really looking at people's transitions from education to different careers. And so I started off that work looking at service members and how they were trying to exit the military and make smoother transitions into things outside of just sort of policing and security, things that they could kind of only imagine as the next thing given their their past experience. And so that was sort of my first foray into helping learners imagine sort of more ambitious pathways for themselves that maybe didn't relate so closely to what they did in the past. And then got to work with Clayton Christensen and from there did a lot of work in the innovation space. So was the chief innovation officer for Southern New Hampshire University and Strata Education Network. And now I'm with Imaginable Futures. Obviously, you know, embedded in the title is this notion of the need for people to learn continuously across their lives, a growing need for people who have ended their traditional educational experience to find new platforms and, and new resources to advance their learning, to be able to sustain employment and a decent lifestyle. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about that problem and how fit for purpose our current system is to support the needs of people who are already have gone through the traditional kind of education course of study? It wasn't until I actually left academia that I realized how some of those important skills that we were developing while learners were engaged in a research-based, you know, like a 20-page research-based argument on this piece of poetry, 
it was only until I left that I sort of saw how I could be more explicit about translating those skills into the language of the labor market. We have these various kinds of language barriers in our ecosystem where job seekers really struggle to translate their skills into things that sound marketable. And then employers really have a hard time sorting through all these different proxies for skills and capabilities. And then learning providers have their very own system of thinking about learning objectives and the way they believe that they are preparing for the workforce. But there's obviously a kind of disconnect where business leaders don't necessarily agree that they're getting the talent that they need. This book is really trying to show that there are ways forward <laughs> if we can actually start aligning around a shared agenda that the current set of systems is just is leaving too many people behind. Mm -hmm. And the way to engage in the future requires just a very different kind of change in behavior. Let's talk about the different parts of the system and what role you see they might play in the future. If we start with colleges and universities, it strikes me that we as a society in the United States have a bit of a schizophrenic perspective of them. On the one hand, particularly highly selective institutions are celebrated as the beautifully paved road to a great future, great income, and the cultivation of skills that would equip people for what the future holds in terms of work, but at the same token, increasing chorus of criticism that too expensive, disengaged from employment. Employers, as you know, regularly are pretty critical of the a level of preparation that even college graduates have when they come in the workforce. What's their role in the future? And are there any role models that you think pop out as institutions that are getting it more right than wrong? We know that technology has changed the game in terms of moving from a content delivery system to more of a problem-solving environment. And we're not actually really changing the fundamental structures within academia to meet that more uncertain world of work ahead. Interestingly enough, engineering schools, where because of the need to entice more minority learners as well as women into engineering programs, they've fully redesigned some of their programs to be revolving around grand challenges, as an example. This is something that came out of the National Academies of Engineering. So they're trying to get people immersed in problems that they want to solve, like how to capture solar energy more efficiently. And in the process of solving those problems, that's when they learn all the principles of engineering. There are other schools that are employing more design thinking you know, freshman courses to, to get folks into the same kind of engineering mindset, it really should be more of the case that we see the breakdown of disciplinary silos so that people can actually engage in this kind of more what the design school at Stanford calls purpose learning. If we get people engaged in solving for poverty or trying to understand how you measure curiosity, you can still do the same sort of learning of different disciplines, but it's more contextualized. And unfortunately, it is not happening at a system-wide level, despite the fact that we've known for quite some time that we don't need to be about delivering content in higher ed. You, of course, mentioned your work with my friend and colleague, the late Clayton Christensen. In the book, you talk about the potential for disruption in the sector. Of course, the type of system you're describing is one that would classically be described as ripe for disruption. Where do you see disruption happening now? And as you think forward, 
what type of offers or interventions you think really have a prospect of changing the outcomes for more people? You see a lot of folks who are trying to simply translate what they were doing in person in the classroom into an online experience right. and not really rethinking whole, mm-hmm. you know, wholesale what we're, what we're actually trying to do. So the kind of disruptive entrants that we've seen as really interesting are these kinds of on-ramp programs that I talk about in the book. These are actually geared more toward the bottom quartile of our labor market for folks who maybe only have a high school degree. It gives them this kind of human skills training, you know, those softer skills that we like to talk about. And it gives them disciplinary skills in cybersecurity or healthcare or advanced manufacturing and gets them into a much better first job that isn't a dead end job, but actually has career mobility built into them. And so we see folks like Perscolis and JVS and Tectonic and IC Stars, Launch Code, these really interesting models that are emerging on the edges that are right now maybe not reaching as many learners as we would hope for. But if we start kind of looking toward those more short burst immersive programs, that is really kind of the model we need to be invested more in as we think about the need for more continuous returns to learning. We don't have a great infrastructure set up to make it more seamless for us to take these on and off ramps in and out of learning and work. Well, one thing that we've certainly encountered in our research, looking at innovative approaches to equipping people with skills and and linking businesses more tightly to the skills development system, is that the entire surround, whether it is government funding for education or what is viewed as a legitimate credential by an employer in ranking and filtering the applicants they get really still revolves around the traditional definition of education, the centrality of accredited institutions, and whatnot. How do we break that system sufficiently to get the type of innovators you were talking about earlier to scale effectively without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, without doing so much damage to the higher ed system along the way that we have a new set of problems? It just used to be a simpler calculus. You go get a degree, you're on your way to a comfortable middle-class lifestyle. But now we have over 4,300 universities out there that grant degrees. We have something like over 730,000 different kinds of credentials out there. When we think about better signals in the market. I think everyone likes the idea of apprenticeship programs. What people don't quite fully understand is how small that pathway is actually within the United States and how very much right now geared towards the skilled trades they are. But as we think about moving into different ways of opening talent pipelines, we know that one of the biggest opportunities to to diversify workforce is to actually remove that degree requirement and look at folks with that skills-based lens, but it's very hard to do right now. And so one of the ways to mitigate risk right now is through these outsourced apprenticeship programs. So groups like Tectonic or Kenzie or IC Stars, what they'll do is they'll work directly with an employer and they'll put someone through their training program. And before they just sort of usher them into the labor market, the on-ramp program actually just hires that participant directly Mm -hmm. as part of their workforce. And then they start to kind of 
push them out onto their different clients. And so what happens is these employer clients get to try out these learners who they normally wouldn't ever give a chance. They would overlook them because they went to this community college they've never heard of, or they don't even have any sort of training beyond high school. But what they see through that outsourced apprenticeship program is, oh my goodness, this person can actually do everything we need them to do and is a great fit for our company. And so it really kind of just de-risks that whole process. Well, it's also there, as you know, there are barriers through the interpretation of various administrative procedures that inhibit companies from doing pre-employment aptitude testing and scare them off of that path. You know, one thing we hear about a lot in our conversations with people at HBS is this notion of the need to build, quote, transferable skills. And of course, that's often linked to other very commonly used phrases, the dreaded stackable credentials and things like that. How should we be thinking about that? And how can we find some ways to cause people's experiences to be recognized as having value in the job market so that the hard work they put in and the experience they've gained and the skills they've cultivated through that are viewed by employers as a credential, just as a degree or a certificate or a license would be? This is a huge issue. We all fundamentally want to believe that there are transferable skills that you can port from one domain to another. But as all of us know, and even folks within, you know, the Harvard Business School who are getting MBAs or, or doctorates, it's not easy to actually pivot from one industry to another. It's not easy to get that chance from an employer who wants to see the exact experience there before they take a shot on you. This has always been an issue in the workforce. We don't have ways of articulating those transferable skills and how really it's only a matter of kind of getting smart in this other thing where we can skill up and then we'll we'll be fine. When the pandemic hit and the retail and hospitality sectors were just completely decimated, what we saw was that void that we just did not have a way for people to understand, especially at that kind of human workforce competencies, baseline competencies level the kinds of skills that would help them move from retail over into human resources, as an example. But the good news is, and I wrote a short piece on this in the Harvard Business Review to sort of say, we actually have enough digital breadcrumbs and big data to kind of take a look at all these different kinds of trajectories of folks moving through the labor market. And we can look at folks who used to start out in retail and sort of see what are the exact kind of skills that they acquired along the way in order to make these different kinds of moves outside of retail. If we look at these more idiosyncratic or anomalous pathways and understand the kinds of skills they add up along the way, so maybe they just add in a couple of skills in payroll and benefits administration, these complementary skills, they can actually move into much better earnings opportunities in finance or HR or these different more promising pathways ahead. But we just, we haven't been able to make those pathways clearer to folks and more obvious and understandable. That's where we have a lot of work to do in in starting to take those kinds of trajectories that we can see and make them much more explicit for folks who need a path forward. Right now, what we're doing right now is just sort of leaving folks who are furloughed or laid off on their own to kind of navigate this by themselves, this is not going to do. So how do we actually start to help people understand more easily through, you know, different kinds of 
AI-powered platforms, ways to understand what they can actually do with those skills. How do we get employers more committed to being supportive of this effort? Because employers always want to seek people with skills and seek validation that the people, a candidate that has the skills, but they don't seem to be interested or motivated to make the corresponding counter-investment of documenting the skills their workers have, of associating those with industry-recognized skills or credentials. So it's as if the employers always want to be a beneficiary of the system, but not an investor in causing the market to work more efficiently. What we're going to get better at, ideally, in the near future is to show how you can take a look at your existing workforce and you will find if you actually leverage these different kinds of skills-based models from places like Skyhive or FutureFit or Hitch, these different groups that are doing some of this work, you can actually look internally and understand the skill sets of your workforce. I think right now the major problem is, and if you talk to huge employers, you know, even some of the big tech giants, they have hundreds of thousands of workers at their fingertips, but they do not know what those people can actually do. They don't know their exact skill sets. They know their names, they know their titles, but they don't have that finer understanding of their capabilities. But through some of these different kinds of platforms, what they're able to do is as people are inserting and typing in you know, their past experiences, these platforms are actually surfacing different kinds of competencies that people who have been in those, you know, been a barista or been in customer service, they can actually say, these are actually the kinds of skills that people like you have demonstrated. Do you have these skills? And so you can kind of start to validate, yeah, actually, I do know how to do some accounting. And once you have a better granular understanding of your workforce, you can start to see, okay, actually, if I take these 10 people and just get them some skills in data visualization, we can actually move them into these roles that we need for our future goals. And what's fascinating is that some of these groups that are going into Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 companies is they're seeing the real churn and the loss of resources where these companies have laid off tens of hundreds of folks and then what they can actually see from the people that they've laid off is, oh, you really actually shouldn't have laid off these 20 people because they were nearly there for yes. the strategic goals you have set for your company. They could have been skilled up. So I think that's where, you know, this this nice marriage of technology-enabled solutions kind of can come in and help us move towards more skills-based hiring. Certainly something we've seen in some of our research in the Managing Future Work project is that employers have had this historic bias to the way we describe it, to play the spot market for labor and always assume there's some dream candidate out there that can give them exactly what they need right now and that they overlook those workers that have the knowledge of the company context, customers, important personal relationships, just that expertise and how we do things around here. How do you view that category? It's sometimes conflated with the unhappily named category of soft skills. But as you think about long life learning, how do those human skills factor in and, and what can we do to cultivate those more successfully in both aspiring workers and mid-career workers? The human skills or these more interpersonal skills, the kinds of skills that we often talk about, like critical thinking, collaboration, teamwork, one of the challenges is that they are often so broad 
that they can kind of encompass a lot of different things. And so even if an employer talks about needing someone who has great problem solving or communication skills, it's not like someone can just sort of say, I'm a great communicator and, right. and get a job, right? So we have this challenge of not being able to say precisely what those skills manifest as in different kinds of pathways, whether you're going into like behavioral health or PR and marketing and advertising, they look very different. It's really kind of come out of the trending conversations about the future of work as computers get to be much better at certain activities than humans are, what are the human skills that we actually can deploy to remain competitive in the workforce? And so everyone talks about these human skills. The challenge is a lot of these skills require deep practice. You can't just kind of do it often in a short burst program. And this is why we need to kind of go way back into our earliest childhood education, all the way up through K through 12, to think about how do we build these skills and cultivate these skills? I think we can see how these human skills are cultivated in programs like liberal arts education programs and you know these broad-based conceptual kind of approaches. But as you think about someone who's 45 or 55 and sees the need to transition into something new, where exactly are they going to go mm-hmm. to, to broaden their human skills? This is where actually VR and AR might have real promise in letting people practice these skills in low stakes environment. As we think about a longer, more turbulent work life ahead of us, where are we actually going to go to build these human skills? It's not as easy as we think, and they're not just sort of innate within us that we can just kind of easily pull out. I think that's some of the major work ahead. What are your thoughts about how COVID is going to inform decision makers about skilling and education going forward? We've certainly had people say this is accelerating the use of digital tools for distance learning. It's causing people to have to hone new skills in dealing with technology. But it's certainly also been tremendously disruptive toward traditional educational experiences and to the nature of human interaction and work. A lot of the work that I was doing when I was leading Strata Institute for the Future of Work was trying to point to the fact that there were already 41 million Americans who were working age adults who were already being left behind. And what the pandemic did was just sort of bring that front and center to show us how unevenly distributed the future of work is and can be, right? Like we've just seen, even in this in this kind of slight recovery that we're seeing, it's only benefiting the folks at the top 10%, right? The bulk of the job losses have happened to those who were already struggling. We have to figure out how to build more flexible, more seamless pathways. It's just incumbent upon us to do that now because everything, you know, everything has just sort of been shattered by this virus. In the long term, it seems that Lower skilled workers, particularly in service industries, are likely to suffer the longest lasting consequence of this. But we've also seen an asymmetric impact on women in the workforce and their employment levels. What does that tell us about the future of work in perhaps a more distributed, technologically rich environment? And what does it suggest about long life learning for those subpopulations? There are some who have called it a she session, right? That the folks who are having to exit 
the labor market in mass numbers are women who have a lot of caregiving responsibilities. And even before the pandemic, Joe, you've done research on this, on the on the care economy, that all of us, the great majority of the workforce has some kind of major caregiving responsibility that takes them away from being the most maybe productive worker that they could be. And we've hidden it from sight. How do we actually enable more flexibility so that people don't have to just completely end their careers in order to take on these different ebbs and flows of work? And so this is a huge challenge ahead of us that, again, like as we think about being on this kind of workforce highway and imagining these kind of relief exchanges, how do we make this a little bit more seamless so that we're not just exiting completely and unable to get back on, but instead just kind of you know, in the case of upskilling, we're just getting what we need and then kind of going back onto that highway. Or if we need to kind of exit in order to take on more of those caregiving responsibilities, how do we do that in a way that still enables us to to come back and not have lost complete momentum? Really does suggest that a lot of the fundamental assumptions about what work looks like and how it's organized that, that have underlaying the design of work and the way companies and institutions thought of it may have to get revisited. One of the limiting factors, right, is that all of our benefits are often tied to full-time employment. But as we think about that longer work life, there have to be more flexible work arrangements where it's not always going to be full-time employment, but we still need access to healthcare or retirement benefits. And it's fascinating too, as you think about an older workforce and enabling them to also stay competitive and not be discriminated against, how do we actually leverage a more mature workforce for those human skills that are so desperately in demand? There is is a real opportunity to maybe pair younger learners and workers with folks who have more experience and kind of can have that larger view of the world. At the same time, as we think about you know, an older aging workforce, we also have to build in opportunities for some of them to unlearn some of the bad habits that they might have accumulated along the way, right? And these are just things that we we haven't accounted for yet. Yeah, one thing that has struck me as a dilemma underlying the more conventional phrase of lifelong learning is that beyond the fact that a lot of our education system just isn't attuned and set up to serving the needs of a mid-career adult in terms of everything from pedagogy to what material is available and what pre-existing knowledge or expertise it assumes, it also assumes a, a real desire and interest on the part of individual learners to re-engage in a traditional educational experience. So many people that find themselves on the spot relative to their capacity to maintain their lifestyle and continue with a career on the path that they've been following haven't had the benefit of the highest achievement in education. They're they're not degree holders. They don't have postgraduate degrees, obviously. And learning was not something necessarily that was their favorite part of life, something they embrace or something they look forward to returning to. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. So I'm I'm fortunate enough to serve as an advisor to Imaginable Futures, which is a venture of the Omidyar Group. And one of the core tenets of their U.S. strategy is focused on student parents. And I think what most 
folks maybe don't realize is that in traditional higher education, one in five learners is a student parent. And we're not talking about like teen parents. We're talking about folks whose median age is 32 and they're disproportionately people of color and, you know, folks who are coming from the lower quartile of the labor market. And so these are folks who have to kind of somehow force fit their lives into this very rigidly linear four-year experience. Our 18 to 24-year population is plateauing, if not going to just sort of fall off a cliff in the mid-2030s. So how are these schools, these thousands of schools, going to actually pivot to meet the needs of these adult learners? It can't be what we're doing right now, where the onus is on the individual. Schools need to figure out how they actually make their schedules more flexible, more asynchronous, inclusive of different kinds of wraparound support services so that folks who do have all these other responsibilities in their lives can actually advance. Well, that would be a big transformation. Just one final question, Michelle. If you had your 10 minutes with President Biden, and if you could impress upon him one or two things can be done at the federal level that you think would help unstick the system and enable long-life learning? What comes to mind? For me, it, it comes down to this issue of time and time poverty, right? I think what the pandemic has shown us is that only a select few can actually afford to pay for services that give us back time. And when we think about the needs to constantly upskill or retool ourselves for the future, or even recover from this real hit to our economy, we always are expecting individuals to somehow find the time on top of everything else going on in their lives to fit in extra learning or that tuition assistance or tuition reimbursement program on top of everything else going on in their lives. What we really need to kind of fundamentally rethink is on-the-job training and move it away from these huge investments into mere risk mitigation or compliance training, but really thinking about how we build skills for the next job and the next job for these folks to think about internal mobility within the workforce. And that requires time. And we have not figured out how to carve out time for some of these multi-million dollar initiatives that are really forward-thinking and exciting from major employers they still have not solved for how are people actually going to find the time to do this? And so the real opportunity for federal investment is to sort of think through how do we actually solve for intergenerational mobility by solving for this real massive issue of time poverty? Well, Michelle Weiss, thank you for joining us and and congratulations on your new book. We're uh, looking forward to see what's next in your career. Thank you, Joe. We hope you enjoy the Managing the Future of Work podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find out more about the Managing the Future of Work project at our website, hbs.edu forward slash managing the future of work. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter.